0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Evangelicals? Are they after America's children? Well, we'll find out today on Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heppernan in California, co hosting my friend and colleague Chuck Morris in Boston, Massachusetts, broadcasting every Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on Cyber Station USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's April 10, 2012. That means it's Religion Tuesday. We are pushing the boundaries of radio, listening to voices of all sides of the issues of the day, and we are joined today, as we are every Tuesday, by the Reverend Michael Wanowitz of Our Lady of Sorrows Church, Catholic Church in uh, Sharon, Massachusetts, and right now, let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morse. Hi, Chuck.
2: How are you, Patrick?
1: I'm doing pretty well, particularly with all the good news that was in the, uh, uh, the news this morning.
2: Good news, eh?
1: Yeah, well, besides... Uh, You know, we should uh, uh, note that Mike Wallace died, which, of course, was not good news, although he had a tremendous career. But um, uh, the CDC reported that teen births have plunged uh, nationally, and the AAA uh, monthly gasoline report and projection uh, says that gasoline prices have peaked and are now starting to drop, and they... They're projecting gasoline will be down a dollar a barrel by the dollar a gallon by the end of the year. So, um, at least two good reports out there today.
2: There's a third report that you're not mentioning, though. I don't know if you're aware of it.
1: Well, the Congressional
2: Budget Office says Obamacare is going to cost an additional 350 trillion <laughs> billion dollars. I, I, I they didn't see didn't that, know that
1: about. report. And uh, we will see if they're right. Cuz so, I
2: suppose the Supreme Court might make the whole thing moot. Who knows?
1: Yeah, that that that's uh, that's possible. And of course, uh, you know uh, that that I don't uh, think the mandate's a good idea. I think we should have single payer, which of course would remove all of those costs. But uh, that's for another show. We're talking about right. religion today. And hi, Michael, are you there with us? Michael We're joined Walton? by
2: Michael Wireless. Mike, are you there? <laughs> We're having a few technical problems, Mike. Sit tight. We'll, I we'll work it right
1: out. Her. Yeah. There, there. He we is go. good. Well, Michael, we're we're, we're going to have a, uh, a a very good show today. Uh, we have a National Catholic uh, reporter, writer, who also is an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and a former Kansas City Star reporter. He's going to be with us, and he's going to try to explain evangelism for us. As you know, evangelism is kind of a dirty word among some places in this country, and uh, and then in Hour 2, we've got a woman who has uh, been documenting a evangelical organization that's trying to use the uh, public schools to uh, convert children. So this should be a very good show. Um, Mike, I wanted to ask you, there's this uh, priest in Austria who uh, was actually targeted by the Pope in his Easter homily for um, uh, uh, Building an organization that opposes some of uh, the church's teachings about women. You, you, are you familiar with that? Uh,
3: it's a long standing uh, meeting, maybe six, seven years of thinking.
1: We're, we're having to, Mike, we're still getting those really strange echoes. Uh, perhaps you could switch over to uh, uh, to Lars, uh, yep. to his microphone there, because Lars has been coming through pretty well. For our our listeners who may not be familiar with this, there is a a, a priest in um, Austria who has uh, assembled an organization in Austria and Germany which uh, is challenging the church's teachings on um women becoming priests and priests being married, and apparently he's put together quite uh, maybe as as many as, as a million parishioners who signed petitions and to the pope and the the pope actually mentioned that uh uh the um uh this organization on um on uh, during his Easter homily so We'll see about that. And uh Mike has uh, dropped off and he's gonna be back on in just a minute. Um and we'll we'll get his opinions on that. Um other than that, uh we oh we have to um welcome in our affiliates. So we're gonna take a quick break and bring in our affiliates. Don't go away. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm welcoming our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm uh, co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Radio from Los Angeles with Chuck Morris in Boston, Massachusetts. And you can join us. You can join us by email. You can email us at FairnessRadio at com. You can also call us, 424-675-6806. We love to hear from you. And also don't forget to check out our website after the show, of course, www.fairnessradio.com for blogs and pictures, et cetera. Okay, we are back. Uh, Mike is not back with us, but uh, I, I just got a, a message that says that they're working on it, okay? <laughs> well, well, Chuck, um, uh, one of the... Uh, the the things we didn't talk about yesterday which I, I really wanted to ask you about was um we had a Jewish holiday last week and actually over the weekend and I'm just right. kind of curious as to what goes on during that holiday.
2: Well there's there's a Seder. It's uh it's a Passover. Um it's the um remembering the um our ancestors and they're dealing with the brutality of the collectivist pharaoh and his slavery, and their quest, 40-year quest, it took an entire generation for them to um, understand and wake up to what the nature of individual freedom was.
1: Wow, boy, I I always thought that the the, the pharaoh was uh, actually the head of a theocratic government and he was considered god and uh, that, that there wasn't anything about collectivism at all and that freedom, uh, individual freedom, I make my actually case did back. come along and, for, for some time. But um,
2: The Pharaoh was the God-King, and uh, Pharaoh was not God. I mean, there, there was no God. The God was the Pharaoh, and in a sense, there's a regression to those sorts of thinkings today when you have the state as behaving as if it's God. But, uh, you know, no, the, the uh, real the, there God, was of a God.
1: The God was raw. It was the sun God, and Pharaoh was the son of the, of the sun God, and he was also considered a God, and, and nothing like that yeah. is happening. Why do you have to view everything through this lens of communism versus freedom? Can't we just Who look at history communism? and history?
2: Who mentioned communism? I didn't mention, I didn't mention anything about communism. I'm mentioning the fact that, that the modern collectivist movement is a regression back to the days when you worship the state. And that the Pharaoh, as a god king, was the state and uh he uh, there was a much more of a collectivist world back then it was less it was before we had advanced and, and and into ideas of individual you know rights and individual identity and property and all those things so you had you know in a sense the entire movement of the Bible is the move toward of individual awareness and away from the, the collectivist modality which is i think why many people today despise the bible
1: um well that that that's the most unique uh, view of the bible i've ever heard uh so and uh, maybe when mike comes back on he he can give us his his viewpoint on that but uh, collectivist sure. i don't see a collectivist movement today actually i see uh, something totally in the opposite but i want to get back to to I agree. Passover. Um, I understand yep. that keeping kosher, that, that the actual process of making food kosher, is supposed to be hard because it's supposed to remind you of when you were slaves in Egypt. That is Not you, but I mean uh, Jews who were slaves in Egypt.
2: Well, having certain types of food, like unleavened bread and, uh, and bitter herbs and, and whatnot, it gives you a, an actual present physical sensation and a reminder of what it was like in, at the time before the – the Israelites had become aware of what freedom is, uh, when they were still in a state of abject, you know, chattel slavery and you know, that, that that's uh, these are supposed to be uh, once a year you kind of reenact that experience so we can remember who we are and what the real true nature of freedom is. Well weren't, weren't the versus collective free
1: people until they were captured by the Egyptians?
2: Yes. But well, the okay. uh, but they so they knew what freedom they was. E-
1: they oh, well, they life had life. forgotten
2: because they had forgotten because they were in slavery for I believe at least one, if not two generations, so you know they they had become so enslaved that that's one of the reasons why uh they traveled in the Sinai for forty years. They didn't just go directly to the promised land they could have they could have gotten there in a matter of a week, but instead, they traveled in the Sinai for forty years because an entire new generation had to grow up that had forgot, that had understood freedom from its childhood that that had not been so taken over by the big state pharaoh and by slavery that that they could function as a free people it took a generation to reawaken that
1: uh, i thought that the uh, the jews wandered in the desert because god was mad at them
2: no that's not why patrick
1: but you know to did they you don't wander have... in the desert
2: They wandered in the desert because it took a generation for them to, for for the new generation to come up that had not been really having had their spirits destroyed by the experience of slavery, that they understood what it was to stand on their own as individuals. And at that point, they were prepared and ready to enter the promised land. They knew what it was to live as a free people, but it was not possible for the generation that had been liberated from slavery to get to that because they had been so... Immersed in slavery, it would be like a prisoner who was in prison for 40 years. Sometimes they forget what it's like to be on the outside.
1: But once you're on the outside, uh, do you automatically forget which which way the sun sets? So you can't walk west. I mean, somehow does this disrupt your your uh, understanding of of geography? No, I mean, I not at it, all. They, the,
2: they they as I said, they could have gotten to the promised land in a matter of weeks. But it was because as spirits, their spirit had been so broken by the experience of the total state in Egypt that they had not understood, they didn't understand how to function as a free people. So as a result, you had to have a whole new generation come up that was, was not shackled and that understood what it was to be free in order for them to be prepared to enter the promised land.
1: So their leader, who at that time was, was Abraham, uh, wasn't really c- capable of leading them. They, they just sort of all Moses. wandered around uh, loosely, and they didn't know what the hell to do. Is that it? No, Moses. It was Moses, Moses. Patrick, Sorry, not Moses. Abraham. Uh-huh.
2: No, Moses knew exactly what to do. I mean, Moses brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he received the Torah. I mean, it was it wasn't that they were just wandering around. There was a lot of things going on. I mean, that's all chronicled in the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus you had the development of government i mean thanks to the moses's uncle jethro who was a midianite who basically gave moses instruction on how to set up sovereign governments and okay. how to create a uh, you know, this all kinds of fascinating things all they right. learned well
1: we have to take a break now when we ha- when we get back we we have a guest with us and uh, maybe we can talk about the golden calf and things like that later on but we're going to take a quick sure. a quick uh, break and we'll be right back We're back. We're back with Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, we're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. You can be part of the program. You can email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com, or you can call us, 424 675 6806. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing. That's www.bartonpublishing.com, your source of information to manage your health and your body without using expensive or or even possibly toxic drugs. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. And don't forget the coupon code FAIRNESS, 50% discount when you put that in the coupon code. Well, in Hour 2 today, writer Catherine Stewart is going to tell us about a national evangelical organization that seeks to convert children in public schools, which outrages many parents and school officials. But is this really the case? Do evangelicals want to assault people, or are they acting from a positive impulse? About a quarter of Americans are evangelicals, but chances are they're not well understood by the other three-quarters of us. In fact, in some circles, the word evangelical has become a negative word. So today, to clarify who evangelicals are and what motivates them is Bill Tumaeus, a Presbyterian elder, a former award-winning faith columnist for the Kansas City Star. Bill also writes the Daily Faith Matters blog on the STARS website and a monthly column for the Presbyterian Outlook, and he also writes articles for the National Catholic Reporter. His latest book, co-authored with Rabbi Jax Kukircorn, is Were They Just People? Stories of Rescue in Poland During the Holocaust. Bill, welcome to Fairness Radio. Bill, can you hear us? Bill?
4: Yes, I'm here.
1: Okay. Uh, Bill, in a recent column, you wrote that people shy away from the term evangelis- evangelical or evangelism because it's been hijacked by people who want to scare the hell out of you and insist that if you're not their kind of Christian, uh, you're not a Christian. They also say some not very nice things about people who aren't Christians, too. Uh, yeah. So, What drives these people? Why do they do that? Well, in my
4: experience, I think it has a lot to do with having a false certitude. Um, many of them believe that uh, their approach to religion is exactly the right approach, and that everyone else is dead wrong, uh, dead in a in an eternal sense, and that uh, it's their job to make sure that everyone else has uh, adopts their approach. Um, I once had uh, someone in the Kansas City area who was interested in folks in the media uh, approach me and tell me that uh, my blood was on his hands if he didn't get me to convert to his version of Christianity. And that kind of approach is simply outrageous, and yet uh, a lot of people engage in it. And and I, I think it, as I say, I think it has to do with this this idea that uh, I'm absolutely right and nobody else is.
1: Well, in, in our country, we separate church and state. Religion is not supposed to intrude into public, tax-supported sphere, and the government is supposed to protect religious freedom and allow people to worship as they as they wish. Does the 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 this absolute certitude that they're right does it sometimes drive People to ignore the law and ignore the Constitution and feel that they're above the Constitution because they are so right.
4: Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, I, I think there's so much misunderstanding about church-state separation. Uh, it, it was really, it's really embedded in our Constitution, although those words aren't there. But in the Constitution and in and in case law, not to protect. Uh, the government from religion, but to protect religion from government and uh i I think that many people um who would identify themselves as progressive or liberal uh don't want people of faith to have a voice in the public square, whereas people uh who would identify themselves as conservative or fundamentalist theologically uh think that their voice should be about the only voice in the public square <laughs> and so you you have these extremes and it's and it's really difficult to find the middle ground here um i do think that uh that there are ways for people of faith to have a voice and to express their positions and and frankly if if they're not expressing their prophetic voice today via the social networking tools, they're probably not being heard at all. Um, And that means on Facebook and Twitter and all of these other tools that we now have available.
1: Well, of course, there's no shortage of of religious websites and Facebook sites, uh, etc. But uh, I want to get back to to motivation. Um, Mm -hmm. You said that many of these... uh, Evangelicals feel that their particular religion, and particularly um, fundamentalist Christian religion, is the only one. Um, do they do they preach? And, and I and, and I've had this experience. Do they preach at you uh, because they think that that if they yell loud enough uh, or are or, or bombastic enough that you'll listen to them, or do they just not understand good communication techniques or or do they not care that that it's the act of preaching that's important to them, not the act of converting?
4: Yeah, I think all of the above. Um, Part of it is that I don't think they understand that if, if, as Christians, they are called to share their faith, and I think that's true of all Christians, that that's the mandate in some way to invite others into the faith, that they have to earn the right to do that, and you don't do that by walking up to someone on the street and demanding to know when you were saved and if you were saved. Um, rather, it, it requires a respectful conversation, and it requires uh, the the Benedictine uh, virtue of humility, I think, so that the other person can recognize that you are human, that that you are not uh, one who uh, thinks he knows absolutely everything about everything, but want to know where where he or she is uh, in this process. So, yeah, I, I I really think that some of the people who are most aggressive in their evangelism and and frankly that also includes some of the aggressive atheists who are evangelizing for atheism, uh, re- really need to learn good, better communications techniques and to understand that before they can invite people into the faith, that, uh, that they need to earn the right to do that uh, by, by personal conversation and in other ways. Well,
1: you've... you've... You've used in that description, you use the word share. And, and is there a sense of generosity involved in this at all, or is it all, I'm right, you're wrong, follow me or else? No, it,
4: uh, good evangelism uh, is absolutely a generous act because, as someone a lot smarter than I once said, it's, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I mean, th- there is the good news that... Uh, that we as christians are required to share um but we don't shove that bread down people's throats or at least we shouldn't and and i also think it's really important to understand what today the the term gospel has come to mean versus what jesus meant by it when when jesus used the term the good news the gospel he was not referring and could not yet be because he hadn't died Uh, He was not referring to the idea that says, Jesus died for your sins, believe in Jesus, and you'll go to heaven. That's not what Jesus meant by the gospel. What Jesus meant, as, as I read it, is that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is possible today. It's breaking in. It is here. And the reign of God means there will be mercy. There will be justice. There will be uh you know poverty will end all of the all of the social ills uh will begin to disappear now clearly that hasn't happened and yet our job as christians it seems to me is to do demonstration projects to show what the kingdom of god will look like when it comes in full flower uh, so if there's to be no poverty in uh, in the kingdom, then we work to relieve poverty today. If there's to be no illiteracy, then we teach people how to read, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it, that differentiation between uh, a gospel that has come to mean uh, confess your sins and and uh, declare Jesus as Lord and Savior and you'll go to heaven is quite different uh, and uh, frankly scarier than the gospel that Jesus preached. And I really think it's it's helpful to draw that distinction between those two versions
1: of the gospel. Well, I, I thank you for the distinction. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Uh, I've, I've only experienced the scary side of, of that, although I will say that there are some... Christian organizations that are outstanding when, when it comes to disaster relief and, and feeding people and taking care of people. And that that impulse, that Christian impulse, and not just Christian, also other religions, too, is is a very positive one. Which brings me to another question. Um, Christianity is not the only evangelical religion. There are others, right. too. You, you mentioned atheism. I, I haven't seen evangelical atheists, but I'll take your word for it since this is your area. But obviously, oh, I know some. Okay, well, I'll take your word for it. Obviously, Islam is an evangelical uh, religion, and in some parts of the world, Buddhism uh, is an evangelical religion, too. Um, and they can't all be right. They can't all yep. be the one true religion, but they could all be wrong. It could be that there is no one true religion. And But I suppose that's kind of a heretical thing for anybody to say who's a member of one of those religions, isn't it?
4: Well, yeah, but it, it seems to me that at some point every individual has to vote uh, about what you believe about eternity and about uh, the creation and its source and all of the eternal questions. And once you commit yourself to uh, to an answer, as I've committed myself to the answer of Christianity um, – I think we still must leave room for the reality that I am a finite human being trying to understand an infinite creator and I'm I'm not capable of doing that and so it's it's possible that I'm wrong about some stuff which is where humility comes in and I think that's what's often lacking in what I would call the more aggressive uh, evangelists out there who um who simply want you to adopt their way of thinking and and uh, will
1: condemn you if you don't. Well, um, well said. Um, I'd like to introduce you to my uh, my my partner and your co-host today, Chuck Morse.
2: Thanks Hi, for joining us, Bill. Appreciate you being with us. You know, when you talk about absolute certitude and you talk about denying someone's humanity that doesn't agree with you. I mean, I I have to tell you that it makes me think of my own experience as a conservative coming from a left-wing family and dealing with a lot of left-wingers over many, many years as a radio host. In fact, I just had a weekend with left-wingers this past weekend, my my in-laws, who are to the left of Stalin. And I can tell you that they, they believe in what they believe in with absolute certainty, and they do view anyone that doesn't agree with them as being less than human. There is a high-minded righteousness there. And uh, as far as, you know, look, I think that we all, Patrick included, we all believe that what we believe is true or else we wouldn't believe it. You know, I mean, you know, Patrick, you believe that your progressivism is true or or you wouldn't believe in your, your progressivism. I mean, I think that that's a given. The issue, which I agree with you on, Bill, is that people can – be you know less than kind in the way they present that and i think that that can include certain elements of the evangelical community but i think that the best way to combat that is to know who you are you know i mean yeah. to uh... you know to talk to a proselytizer but yet know you know where you are i mean i've been involved for example in countering an organization of in in years past called jews for jesus i happen to be a jew and uh... I had a pretty big confrontation with them on the air in Boston, which made news. And I tell my Jewish co-religionists that the best way to handle this group, within the context that they have a right to do what they do, and in a lot of things they're into I agree with, is to know who you are as a Jew, to know who the Jewish, to understand the Jewish covenant, to immerse yourself in your own faith. And then you can speak to people and and have enough self-awareness and enough confidence to know who you are, and to then have an intelligent conversation with them. Yeah,
4: I agree with you, uh, Chuck. I, uh, a fellow that you may know also, Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, um mm-hmm. Orthodox I- rabbi, um, once told me that a lot of interfaith dialogue is really interfaithless, in the sense that you have people who have a nominal commitment to one faith or another and are not very well educated in that faith. Uh, you have them discussing faith with similar people of a different faith who don't understand their own faith. That's right. And it seems to me that uh, if, if real interfaith dialogue is to take place, then you have to be able to articulate your own faith clearly and understand, as you said, where you are coming from Otherwise, it's, it's just, you know, words you know, passing each other in the night. It's uh, it's useless, and, um, and
0: and interfaith
4: dialogue, I think, is what we're really called to in this century in this country. Uh, I think the U.S. has an opportunity to model religious harmony in a way that perhaps no other nation does because of our pluralism. And, right. And so I, I really promote the idea that interfaith dialogue leads to a deeper commitment to your own faith. It generally doesn't lead you to uh, converting to some other faith, but if you if you as a Jew and I as a Christian are to have a, a deep discussion uh, about faith, then we have to begin where we find some common ground, but eventually we have to lay on the table uh, our differences and how we understand those differences, but in a respectful way. And and that takes some knowledge. I mean, I have to understand Christianity in a deep way, and you have to understand Judaism.
2: Um, no, I, I entirely agree, and I think there are areas where we're not going to agree, and I don't think the goal is to agree, <clears throat> nor do I think it's a virtue to necessarily agree. Um, okay. it, it's much more, I think, of a virtue for people to strengthen themselves <clears throat> in, in their in their Christian and, and Jewish faiths. Now, as far as yeah, uh, this group... Evangelizing in schools, I don't have a problem with that, except if they're doing it deceptively. And that was my problem, for example, with Jews for Jesus. Not that they were proselytizing, but they were going out and saying, "We are the true Jews, and yep. that you are a uh, an incomplete Jew." And my, my response to that was, "No, you're Christian, and that's great. I celebrate that, and I don't, and I understand that you want to get back to." Uh, to Jewish roots after all Jesus Christ was a Jew I understand that but uh, but you know in at the same time God's covenant with the Jewish people is forever and you know our faith is what it is uh so you know there's not going to be a reconciliation there I think that it has more to do with the fact that as long as they're honest about who they are like these groups in schools that you're talking about they're pretty open about the fact that they uh that they want to to influence people to come to Christianity, aren't they?
4: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. But, it, again, it's playing by the rules. It's uh, it's announcing who you are and what your goals are and then playing by the rules of where it's constitutionally possible to do what you want to do. Um, right. But, you know, Chuck, it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned uh, Jews for Jesus or Messianic Jews, and I'm... Uh, I'm heading to Israel on Sunday, uh, helping to lead a Jewish Christian study group, and my co-author of my last book is a rabbi, and he has said about Messianic Jews that he finds them deceptive, in the right. sense that just as you said, you know, if if you're going to uh, be a Christian uh, and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, be a Christian, and and don't, you know, don't yeah. go... F- Boat ride with one foot on the shore.
2: For heaven's sakes! Well, that's exactly what I said, and I, I even understand it if they say that they're messianic Christians. In other words, yeah. they want yeah. to be Christian, but they want to be like the early Christian church was in the generation right after Jesus, which w- which was a church that considered itself to be Jewish, and that that's was really you know observant. And Jesus said that the Torah, which of course Christians call the Old Testament would not change, not a single jot or tittle would change. So, yes. you know, he lived by the Torah. I mean, he was a devout Jew to the day he was crucified and, and uh, I think that to for Christians to want to get back to an understanding of that, that's great, you know, mm-hmm. if that's what they want to do.
4: Yeah, yeah and and Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul was a, a Jew till his dying day and, and Paul did not found Christianity. I mean, Christianity, it took a long time for Christianity as a separate religion to separate itself from Judaism and we get into a lot of trouble by assuming that the at the moment of Easter resurrection the Christian church bloomed into full blossom. Um, that right. that just causes all kinds of historical problems as well as theological problems and and Paul has been used as a as a foil for anti Semitism and anti Judaism, theological anti Judaism in the early days and and uh, it, it,
2: that we know where that has led over the years. Yes. No, I, I understand those are sort of, uh, yeah, Christian, inter-Christian arguments, and there certainly was both anti-Semitism within the early Christian church and anti-Christianity within Judaism at that time because they were struggling uh, really more politically than anything, and uh, there was some unfortunate things written, unfortunate things said. There's no question about that on both sides.
4: Yeah, that's right. I, I have on my blog a long essay about uh, this long, lamentable arc of anti-Judaism and Christian history, and uh, it's it's a sad story, and a lot of Christians today don't understand that. And particularly, uh, I would say the more evangelical Christians today, about whom we began this discussion, uh, often don't know that history of anti-Judaism, and, and it ought to... It ought to silence us, frankly. I mean, given what Christians have done to Jews over the centuries, it's it's remarkable that that we feel we can uh, even uh, look in, look them in the eye and and uh, proceed.
2: Well, you know, I think that it has largely been silenced. I mean, I think that certainly the Catholic Church has moved beyond it. I think that Protestant denominations have moved beyond it. I don't think there's any major problem with anti-Semitism. Uh, in in um, in Christianity today, in fact, the, is the state of Israel, their best friends, are evangelical Christians. Uh, you know, even yeah. more so. Some even say more than the Jewish community.
4: I know, but I I sometimes tell my Jewish friends to be careful who your friends are. Uh, that there are reasons that that so-called Christian Zionists are supporters of Israel, and it, and it theologically it has to do with the fact that they believe that. Until Jews control the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the Second Coming can't happen. And right. when the Second Coming happens, in their view of things, all Jews either convert or are done away with. I mean, it, it's it's really an, an anti-Semitic kind of position in many ways.
1: And, uh, Bill uh, uh, and Chuck, we're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, Bill, can you stay with us? So when we come back, we have a lot of email for you. Okay,
0: I'll be okay.
1: You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And we're going to take a one-minute break so our stations can identify themselves. Stay tuned.
0: Starful full of And you've been looking okay. In the wrong direction the There's no one To catch your drift I've got your cover It's true love That you lack like. Baby I've got your back
1: And we're back, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your source of information on managing your health and your body without resorting to expensive and dangerous drugs. And uh, we're talking about evangelicals and e- evangelism today. Today, of course, is Religion Tuesday. We're talking, w- we're talking with uh, Bill Timaeus. Um, who writes for the National Catholic Reporter and the Kansas City Star and is an elder in the Presbyterian Church? We have a lot of emails. I'll, I'll, however, I'll continue to give the email uh, address. It's Fairness Radio with uh, Chuck and Patrick. You can also call us four two four. I'm sorry, it's Fairness Radio at gmail.com. You can also call us at four two four six seven five sixty eight zero six. First email here is from Tim Kelly. Tim is in Seattle, and Tim uh, writes. Why can't evangelicals just leave the rest of us alone? We are we are sure of ourselves and we're happy about it. They just want, they just waste our time. Phil,
4: <laughs> well, uh, I suppose an answer to that is why can't uh, insurance salespeople leave us alone? Why can't advertising on TV <laughs> leave us alone? Everybody has a right to uh, to say a message and. Uh, and uh, you have a perfect right to say, I'm not interested, thanks, and close the door or hang up the phone. And and that's how we
1: work in this country. We don't mandate that people shut up. Okay. Uh, g- good answer. I'm not sure evangelicals would like to be compared to sh- insurance salesmen, but uh, we'll let that go. Buyer um, insurance. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, Catherine White in uh, San Francisco asks, uh, can your guest tell us where in the Bible – christians are commanded to convert others well the 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 verse that's most
4: often pointed to is at the end of the gospel of matthew and when when jesus says go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit and christians have taken that primarily as marching orders to go out and share their faith uh make disciples of christ that is uh Encourage people to become followers of Jesus um, there are perhaps other places but but that's the primary uh verse that people refer to when looking
1: at the Bible. Well, I noticed that uh, in your language uh, when you answer that question, you use two phrases um, marching orders and make disciples that that sounds almost militaristic uh, it doesn't sound very generous. Am I reading something there that's not there? Uh,
4: I would say marching orders would be a kind of internal Christian understanding. That's not what you would say to someone uh, with whom you're having a conversation to say, uh, "I've marched over here to make you a disciple." Damn it! You know that's
2: some of them do. That's not. Okay. Can I just chime in interested. here briefly and, yeah, and sure. qualify something? Yeah. There's nothing in the New Testament, nothing in Christian texts that call for military conquest and force to be used to um, to convert someone. Unlike Islam, by the way, yeah. and that in fact uh, the Christian idea is for the individual to come to, an, to come to a personal relationship with Jesus um, mm-hmm. and, and to do so one on one in their own heart. There's nothing. Whatsoever to uh, to indicate a warlike posture. Though that doesn't mean that there haven't been instances in history where Christians right. have resorted to war to convert or to conquer heathen peoples. The one I can think of is the, uh, the the Frankish conquest of the Saxons. But it's it's the exception. Generally, Christianity spread peacefully throughout the Roman Empire.
1: Uh, Bill, uh, I, and good point, Chuck. Uh, Bill, any comment on that? And-
4: well, I, I just want us to be careful uh, in labeling Islam a militant, militaristic kind of faith, that that's how it's spread. Uh, certainly, that there's some of that in, in Islam's history. And I think if you compare the bloodiness of Christianity with the bloodiness of Islam, that neither of them looks very good. Perhaps Christianity looks even worse. But um, uh, I, I, I just think we have to be careful... Uh, not to blanket uh, either faith
2: in that regard. Well, well, I'm just I'm only making reference to actual doctrines of the faith, and the doctrines within the Quran and and the Hadith do call for jihad, and that does mean what the real believers think it means, which is a bloody war, either through outright war or through subversion. So there's nothing like that in Christianity. In Christianity, it's more like, um, you, you know, come to come to Jesus. Uh, through your own heart, and again, you're right. I mean, that doesn't mean that Christians have always been, uh, you know, holy, of, you know, perfectly, you know, perfect uh, transmitters of that, that faith. I mean, of course. Yeah. Um,
4: question. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm not here to to defend Islam, but uh, but as I think everybody knows, jihad has several meanings, and the primary meaning is the inner struggle. To be in in harmony with God, but n- nonetheless, that's
2: that's right. not that's the Western that
3: meaning. Um,
1: yeah. Raphael uh, Donak, pardon me, Raphael, if I'm uh, mangling your name here, uh, Donake and Donakia in, in um, New York wants to know: Are all Christians evangelicals? It seems like the words have become interchangeable. I know a lot of Christians who aren't evangelicals, but based upon the Bible, it seems to me that all Christians should be evangelicals. Is that true?
4: Well, I would respond this way. Uh, the term evangelical has come to mean a particular kind of Christianity as opposed to all of Christianity. Um, in the uh, in its purest form, uh, I think the emailer is right, that all Christians are in some sense evangelical, but evangelism simply means the obligation to tell the story to to share uh the good news and in that sense all Christians are evangelical but the term particularly in the last 50 or 70 years has come to mean uh right wing harsh rigid um, judgmental uh th- those kinds of terms sometimes uh, wrongly but but so no not all Christians are that description but but in a sense uh, all Christians are called to be evangelical
1: in a in a lower case e sense it, um what you 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 brought up the point that um both Christians and and the word Christian and evangelical has has come to take on a uh, negative uh, meanings uh, is any of that justified is uh, at all and and is there a way to to separate um the unjustified parts of that from the justified parts of that well i i think
4: uh the evangelical christianity i just described as as rigid judgmental and so on uh yeah that that ought to be criticized in many ways uh i think it's i think it's a sort of a misreading of the faith in some ways and it's this it's this false certitude i talked about earlier um so you know, with that reputation, um, it, it deserves criticism. What I what I caution people about, however, is not to assume that all Christians are that way. And often in the media, which I'm part of, um, Christianity gets presented as though people like Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell were our only spokespeople, and and you know they don't speak for me and never have.
1: Okay. Um, Jonathan uh, Stiegel uh, In uh, Los Angeles uh, Writes uh, Why are evangelicals So hung up on sex and women Every street preacher I see rails about Evil women and promiscuity It seems like they're not really interested In your souls at all Yeah What an excellent observation (laughs) Good question (laughs) I sure wish I knew the answer to that Uh,
4: I you know i suspect uh, uh christianity's uh, obsession if you will with sex goes back to the to the garden of eden story uh of in genesis and uh and the the role that eve has supposedly uh, played there uh i, I don't know I, I i suspect also it has to do with uh, male insecurity
2: um you know i then. i really reject the premise i don't think that Christianity is obsessed with sex. In fact, I think the secular culture is more obsessed with sex. Not I think that, that right. Christianity uh, draws... Yeah, I know it. I think Christianity draw- draws its... Um, on this issue in in this interest, and it comes from really the Old Testament more than anything, in the idea of restraint. In other words, and, and also in what are proper relationships, and that's laid out in the book of Leviticus. You know, it has more to do with than just sex. It has to do with things like adultery. It has to do... I mean, to, to just bring it down to the, that common denominator that it only has to do with sex, that actually narrows what the, the much bigger questions that are brought up, which is what are the proper human relationships between people, between communities, between nations, and what are the improper relationships? It, it's, it's really what it's about, and, and, it, and it's based upon this premise of separation and of restraint. So you know, I think this. I think that the, those who are sexually obsessed actually are, are people who probably are not Christians, or you know, or, or who might be involved in other uh, forms of belief.
4: Well, I, you make some good points, Chuck. But I, I uh, also think that um, many, many branches of Christian, some branches of Christianity at least, uh, have been uh, so focused on, on sexual issues that. Um, they have forgotten about the relationship aspect of it um you know they 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 preach no premarital sex in a way that that for good reason but mm-hmm. but they don't help young people uh find ways to uh have a wholesome relationship and uh and I think the culture's uh obsession with sex is is has much more to do with. With uh, liberation and, and uh, li- almost a licentiousness, I mean, it's impossible to uh, absorb any part of the popular culture today without being overwhelmed with with sexual innu- innuendo and uh, right. Yeah, and but I-, I
2: think what you're describing, though, is is an unfortunate, perhaps overreaction to the sexualized culture. Uh, it's not that Christianity per se is focused on sex. But they but they see that this aspect of the, the removal of restraint, which is a basic understanding of the Judeo Christian ethics has been lifted up so they're overreacting and they shouldn't. There's no question about yeah. it. They should ignore it or they should they should try to focus on who they are. But I under, I can understand that overreaction. I, I think a lot of people can.
1: We have a, a lot of emails uh uh directed at you, Chuck, um uh, about no, brother. Uh, the The uh, wandering in the desert. So I'll read just one of them. Um, This is from from Bud Russell. And Bud Russell says, Chuck is wrong. The reason the Jews were were wandering in the desert for 40 years is they were disobedient to God. While Moses was up on the mountains receiving the Ten Commandments, the people began to worship other gods. In fact, they made the golden calf. As and it's for an act of disobedience. They were made to wander the desert for 40 years until all those who disobeyed had died out and cleansed. It had nothing to do with being slaves. It had to do with, with being disobedient. And there are several my, other ones. That well, okay, look, my
2: way. source on that, because we have a lot of time here. Yes, that's also there, but my source on that is the, is Talmudic sources. I mean, I, I've talked to rabbis that are steeped in Talmud, and generally that's the view of, of the, Talmudic, the Talmudic view. Okay, yeah, well. you know, yes, they were worshipping you know, the, the golden calf. That was a reversion back to the old Egyptian ways. But uh, the bigger picture, the, the the thing that we need to learn from today is that they had they did not have experience in freedom. That's that's a common Talmudic view.
1: Okay. Um we have another email here for uh, our guest um and and this is from uh, Cindy Asker. Um Cindy doesn't say where she is. Um Cindy says evangelicals I have met only talk. They don't listen. They never consider others could be right. That's why I ignore them. They seem to be blinded by their own con- convictions. If they listen more, they would probably be more successful. Um, she makes some good points, but I,
4: I would uh, remind Cindy that not all evangelicals are the same That uh, and not... All evangelicals are would describe themselves as uh the right wing Republican party at prayer uh, in fact uh in some recent elections uh twenty to thirty percent of self identified evangelicals have voted for the Democratic presidential candidate uh so these kinds of labels often uh hide more than they reveal, and her experience with evangelicals is not uncommon. But it it should not be taken to describe
1: all evangelicals. Well, you you mentioned um, uh, a, a political party, and and maybe both of you can comment on this. Uh, I wanted to ask you: Is uh, Rick Santorum doing good things for evangelicals or not good things for evangelicals? Is he is he a good spokesperson for that branch of? Uh, of uh religion or is he in- increasing the, ne- the the negative uh stereotype
0: boy i
4: i don't find much uh, inviting about Santorum and his approach to uh evangelical faith uh, uh i i find uh a sort of a judgmentalism and a certitude there that that is off putting to me um but uh, for some for some evangelicals he is a perfect spokesman uh, and and you know we have to remember he's a he's a Catholic evangelical which puts a little bit different spin on it but uh Chuck, I'd be interested in your response
2: well, first of all, I want to say to Cindy the emailer that that sounds like a lot of people that I've come across. <laughs> who are not necessarily evangelicals. Uh as far as Rick Santorum, you know, he's not my cup of tea. I mean, you know I I'm, I'm I'm an open supporter of Mitt Romney. But um but I think that he uh, he's expressed a conservative and a religious view fairly well. I, I don't think that um I I can think of anything that he's done that's um I mean he sometimes I think makes comments out of a tiredness and he's a little sloppy at times by getting sucked into certain conversations that he might otherwise avoid, just as a political observance. But I, I, don't, I think that he's a fairly good spokesman for for evangelical Christianity.
1: Okay. Um, there was another part of, of, and this has to do with with Rick Santorum too. There was another part of one of the uh, the emails, uh, this the the one from. Um, uh, I can scroll through here, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Spiegel, who who asked about uh, why Christians are so hung up on sex, but he also asked about why Christians seem to, Christian evangelicals seem to be anti-women. And that, of course, has been the, the tag that's been applied to uh, Rick Santorum. And, and for our guests, first of all, are Christian evangelicals anti-women? And secondly, do you think that's an honest tag to apply to Rick Santorum or the Republican Party? Well,
4: I I want to be very careful about labeling a whole group of people anti-women or misogynist. I I I think there are some positions they take that uh, at times that uh, women generally find uh, offensive, and and I would agree with them about that. But um, I think you have to be. I think you have to cite chapter and verse about. This position, that position, this statement, that statement, is that anti-woman, and what what does anti-woman mean before you uh, paint the whole group with the same color? Um, As for Santorum, uh, I I think he has said and done some things that have uh, made a lot of women very uncomfortable and have... Increased what's called the gender gap in the polls, so that uh, Obama does better against uh, Santorum than than even uh, Romney when it comes to women. Um, so I think I think, think that
2: this is I think this is a conscious and deliberate political tactic to try to use hatred and divisiveness and negativity in order to win power. Okay, on the part well, of well, uh, Obama and the Democrats.
1: We're going to we're going to lose power because we're out of time. Right? <laughs> uh, but Bill, uh, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thanks for Thanks joining us, you. Bill.
1: Uh, Bill Tumeus, and you can follow Bill at Faith Matters blog and that is com. That's BillThomas.typepad.com. We're going to take about a minute and a half break while our stations uh, identify themselves and do a little news, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Don't go away. Thanks,
4: gentlemen.
0: Thank you, Bill. Baby, I'm done, and he pushed back his plate. The sky was as dark as the hour was late. Took the fat with the lean and the hot with the cold. But I'm hungry for love. Love, hungry for love. I go down by the river where the silver moon shines, and I'll read my reflection like the book of my mind. I've been dreaming of rainbows and rumors of gold, I've been dreaming of love.
1: That was Black Sheep by Stephen Thering, the Rodeo King. Stephen's going to be with us Friday, this time for real. He's actually going to be on the radio with us. You can talk to him. And uh, that will be at 2.30 Friday. And you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We're moving into Hour 2 of Fairness Radio. I'm Patrick, Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. Co-hosting with Chuck Morris in Boston, it's April 10, 2012, five days before tax day, except tax day is a couple days later because it falls on a Sunday. And we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We push the boundaries of radio whenever we can. We broadcast Monday through Friday, through 1 to 3 Eastern, on Cyber Station USA, Block. Uh, the blogtalkradio.com platform, and our radio affiliates. And we love to hear from you, 424-675-6806. Email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com. A lot of you email us. Sorry we didn't get to all of them, particularly all of those who who emailed to tell us about the Golden Calf. We got it. Thank you. Uh, Check Twitter and Facebook and our website at uh, fairnessradio.com. We're joined today... Uh, by uh, the Reverend Michael Awanowicz Michael's going to be with us uh, later on this hour he's our Catholic theologian and he's from the Our Lady of Sorrows Catholic Church so as soon as he shows up on the board we'll we'll introduce him but right now I'd like to introduce my friend and colleague Chuck Morris Hi Chuck
2: How are you Patrick?
1: I'm good and I, I thought the uh, conversation with uh, Bill uh, Tumaeus was very interesting I, I really enjoyed listening to him and uh, I don't know, what did you think?
2: I liked it. I thought it, was, it seemed a little different than his blog site, but it was very, very good.
1: Yeah, it, it does seem a little different than his blog site, uh, and I noticed he also wrote a, a history of the, the Jewish experience in Poland too. That might be uh, uh, an interesting topic one of these days. Does that? You bet. Yeah, I'd like to, to bring him back on. Well, I, I can tell you had something you want to talk about. I did. You do.
2: No, not necessarily. Oh, okay. All <laughs> right. <laughs> I figured you had some things today. Oh. You're your hosting.
1: Uh, well, I know. I, uh, I, I thought maybe we didn't finish up uh, conversations that uh, we were having uh, earlier. But uh, thank you for the explanation of the Talmudic source and for all of those people who, who emailed us and said that uh, the Jews wandered because they built the golden calf and God was mad at them. Uh, I, now, what is the difference, Chuck, between the Talmudic source and the Bible?
2: By the way, that's not necessarily exclusive. I mean, the uh, the golden calf is also part of it. It's not a simple answer. The Talmud, of course, was redacted after the Bible. The Talmud was redacted in uh, starting in Roman times. Tradition has it that the Talmud is what was called the oral law, as opposed to the written law, which is the Torah. And that it was passed down to the generations, all the way from Abraham through Moses, right down to the days when it was finally written down in Roman times, in, uh, in Palestine, um, in probably maybe 200 A.D. And uh, the Talmud is made, there are two Talmuds, there's a Jerusalem Talmud and a Babylon Talmud, being named because one was written in, in Palestine, the other was written in Babylonia. And it's basically commentary, it's, it's sort of like, I guess you might say it's case study, in, in a sense, which the Supreme Court does um, with relation to the Constitution. It was written by a a council of uh, rabbis called the Sanhedrin, which was made up of 71 rabbis appointed for life. They sat for almost 500 years. It's an amazing story. And uh, these were very, very holy men, but they were also very practical men. They had jobs. They had families. Um, They were of the world, but they were also... uh, very high level uh, eth- ethically to get to that position. And they took rulings on uh, Jewish law and Jewish questions. Uh, they looked at the Bible very much as a Supreme Court is supposed to look at the Constitution. And they made, uh, they had debates and they made rulings. And the debates on all sides are all contained in these massive volumes. And sometimes it's very contentious. The whole way of engaging in Talmudic debate, and I think it was influenced by, by the Greeks, the, so- the Socratic debate, um, is, uh, in a sense, uh, carried on today in, uh, in uh, why a lot of Jews maybe are good lawyers. And a lot of, actually, a lot of Catholic universities are introducing Talmudic studies into their law schools. Interesting.
1: I, I didn't realize, what, uh, when you said redacted, you mean that these scholars actually rewrote the Bible? The
2: New no, they didn't rewrite it. They commented on it. Ah, they didn't okay. change the Bible, okay. nor did. and their goal was not to, uh, you know, this wasn't, they didn't look, this isn't a living constitution theory here, okay. you know, which we just talked about with right. uh, Judge Wilkinson. They looked at the Bible, and they tried to get as close as they possibly could to what God had in mind, what All God right. meant. They didn't take, they, they weren't taking the place of God,
1: okay. which is what
2: the living theory is,
1: you know what I mean? Okay uh I do me I know what you mean and um, right now we have to take a quick break uh so our stations can uh come in we'll be right back Station USA, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, which is going to be the site of the Republican National Convention, and KSKQ FM in Ashton, Oregon, which is the site of the best Shakespeare Festival in the country. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California. I'm co hosting with Chuck Morsey in Boston, and you can be part of this. You can join us by email. You can uh, at fairnessradio at gmail dot com. And after the show, check out our website at www.fairnessradio.com. dot com. And I think Mike is uh, back with us. Uh, and that would be Mike want- Reverend Mike Wanowitz. He's a deacon uh, of the uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church, and he's also a Catholic theologian. Mike, is that you? Are there?
3: Yes, I'm back from uh, traveling from the studio home here. So oh. and we're back on the phone
1: wonderful and you sound so much better. You don't sound like you're in a very large room with nobody else in it. <laughs> yeah,
3: <clears throat> they were trying to explain all the technicalities which were beyond me, but so anyway, I'm home with my land phone and we're back in the business.
1: Okay, well, those technicalities obviously are beyond us, too. I'm sorry you weren't with us. We had an excellent interview with
3: uh,
1: uh, Bill uh, uh, Timaeus, uh, but we may have him back on, as a matter of okay, fact. Okay, good. So, so um, well, before you you left, I had asked you uh, if you knew about this, this Austrian priest who's organizing a movement against uh, the church's teachings on uh, women and married priests. Are you are you familiar with that?
3: Well, yes. As I started to say, and unfortunately we didn't have the <clears throat> technical capacity for it, but <clears throat> this is a situation been brewing. I'll call it that in Austria for some time, five, ten years, perhaps. At the local level in different parishes up to the uh, area where they're reporting directly to the Cardinal, Cardinal Schoenborn, uh, there's been this discussion, as we've seen some in the United States, about, sure, celibacy, women priests, and those kinds of things, separation, divorce, the discipline of the sacraments. At Austria, a group of priests, and it's hard to say how many, uh, formed an association and they protested uh, orally, rhetorically, et cetera, and presented uh, written suggestions, if you will, to Cardinal Schoenborn about how the church, at least in Austria, might modify its particular stance. And Schoenborn had been very careful uh, not to uh, discipline them necessarily, but also to kind of hew to the orthodox Catholic position. Now... <clears throat> Bringing us up to date, on Holy Thursday uh, of last week, Pope Benedict XVI was preaching a homily uh, for what's called the, uh, the, the Mass, the chrism Mass in the morning and the Mass of the Supper in the evening. And in the morning, the chrism Mass is devoted to the priesthood, people recommitting their consecration as priests to Christ in the way of the, serving the Church. And Benedict took the particular opportunity to say that people who are, quote, disaffected need to be reminded of their call, their commitment to the church and to Christ, and to the idea of being obedient to Christ, rather than saying that they themselves have thought this through carefully and have personal opinions. So it's a longstanding situation in Austria where they've been working the local priesthood to try to modify the church's positions, and the cardinal Schoenborn, and now Benedict saying, "Rethink your obedience to Christ."
1: Well, as, as we've talked about earlier uh, and, and, and other shows, um, my understanding—and and Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong—if if my memory's right, uh, if my memory's wrong on this—is that the the Catholic Church's um, commands against um, Church uh, priests being married and female priests actually aren't part of uh, dogma. They're they're kind of rules that were enacted in the fourth century when married priests um, began to bequeath their parishes to their children, which of course they should be doing the church <clears throat> property. But but right. the, those are things that 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 have nothing to do with the Bible or, or dogma. They're just rules that can be changed. Isn't that correct? <clears throat> yeah. The
3: um the Call it the discipline, if you will, <clears throat> the idea of having priests be married or celibate,
0: <clears throat>
3: excuse me, is certainly a particular position which the Pope can change. It's legislation, if you will. Uh, but the idea of the separation between saying, can men be ordained? The answer is yes. Can women be ordained? And the answer is no, since the very beginning. So there is that big distinction in your right. Between married priesthood and the idea of gender of those who are called to the priesthood.
1: Well, if uh, the uh, if, if Protestants uh, Protestant priests come over to the the Catholic Church and some are, and I understand there's mm-hmm. a campaign within the Catholic Church to actually bring some Protestant priests over because the Catholic Church is running out of priests. <clears throat> some of them are married, and doesn't the Catholic Church have to make an exception for that? <clears throat>
3: Well, what happens, and this has been going on for some time, uh, when a Protestant uh, priest ordained in some particular denomination, uh, his wife and family perhaps are parishioners in a Protestant church, Episcopal, Methodist, whatever it may be, and they do decide for whatever reason to convert to Catholicism, then there's two steps. One, they become confirmed into the full communion of Roman Catholicism, and then, should things work out, they can be admitted to and be ordained within the priesthood of the Catholic Church, and, of course, they remain married and so forth and so on, and we do have a, quote, dispensation in that regard, so, in fact, uh, there's a significant number uh, of married priests who are working uh, in the Church throughout the world.
1: Well I know that there's a, a uh, an international organization called Women Priests which uh is uh trying to build a movement to have uh, women ordained and <coughs> I uh they reject that the uh the and these are Catholic women, they reject the church's uh, argument that uh there were never women leaders in the church and in fact <laughs> they point out that Mary Magdalene was essentially the uh the the member of the apostles who was closest to uh, to Jesus uh, in the in the Bible. Uh, do, what do you have to say to to uh, the women priest organization?
3: Well, <clears throat> when priests who uh ordained in quotation marks, if you will, <clears throat> by a bishop who may or may not be in good standing with the church. But the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, does not recognize. Uh, whatever they feel is going on. So the term women priests is a term that they use, but it has no substantiation in terms of uh, being recognized to have the faculty and be part of the, uh, quote, Roman priesthood. Uh, Certainly there's much discussion, much theological supposition about whether or not women could be, can be, should be ordained as priests. And since the beginning at least the orthodox catholic position has been theologically that Christ has given a mandate as to how the priesthood moves on from the 12 apostles uh and that's the succession and you know people can say that Mary Magdalene surely who was a wonderful disciple uh and as its the term is given to her the apostle among the apostles because she was the first to go to the empty tomb, one of the few women who did that, and she was the one who announced to the other disciples, Peter and James and the others, that in fact the tomb is empty, that Christ has risen. But that doesn't provide a connection to say that she was ever working uh, as a, quote, ordained, and of course that's a fairly contemporary term in the church anyway, but uh, that discussion has been going on for a long time and will continue.
1: Okay, so so the uh, the women who were ordained uh, by the uh, the Czech bishop uh, Felix uh, Davidek um, uh, were never recognized by the Pope, and were in far as the Catholic Church is concerned, were never priests. Okay, right. Well, um, my own feeling, and I know Chuck, I'm sure you have opinions on this too. My own feeling is that I think the Catholic Church is cutting off its nose despite its face, and uh, the uh, the plunge in in Mm. priests. Numbers of of priests, I think, is just evidence of that. I don't know, Chuck. What do you think of this, Chuck? Don't hear Chuck. Uh, hmm. (laughs) Huh? Maybe you and Chuck can't be in the same electronic room together. (laughs) Uh, Chuck, are you there? Okay. All right, well, we're going to take a break, um, and we have a a guest uh, who's who's coming on. And uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about um, the schools and uh, evangelism. So stay tuned. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Patrick, and everybody's here. Uh, you're listening to, to Fairness Radio on the Block Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and uh, with our radio affiliates around the country. And this segment is brought to you by Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. Well, in Hour 1, uh, we heard from Bill uh, Tumias about the motives of evangelicals, uh, and for the most part, joyful and generous, but uh, not always. In this hour, we look at their actions. Some of which, according to our guest author, Catherine Stewart, are are a wide ranging attack on religious freedom and our children. In her book, The Good News Club Right Wing Christian Stealth Assault on America's Children, she describes a pervasive strategy that should chill parents of any religion and that goes beyond generous evangelicals. Catherine, welcome to Fairness Radio.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, Catherine. Your book claims there's a stealth assault on America's children. Those are strong words. So could you tell us what that means and what your evidence is?
5: Sure. My book is about a wide range of initiatives by the religious right to infiltrate and undermine uh, public education in America. Uh, And I cover a range of initiatives, such as the establishment of after-school Clubs that are intended to convert young children to a fundamentalist form of Christianity, targeting the elementary school years, uh, including children or who, who are too young to read. I also talk about um, how um, uh, a, a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of uh, student-initiated forms of religious activity uh, activities are typically organized through adult-led church groups and they have proliferated, such as distribution of religious literature on public school campuses. Student athletics has been the focus of a large and successful effort to introduce Christian prayer into a public school environment, and other efforts are directed at introducing Bible curriculums that, um, under the guise of studying scripture, from a nonsectarian point of view, tend to promote a particular religious viewpoint. Um, There are also uh, other variations on the longstanding project of inserting religious doctrines into public school textbooks. I think a lot of people may be familiar with the Texas textbook wars. Uh, The Texas State Board of Education was overtaken by a a far-right faction that sought to uh, not only call into question teachings about evolution, but also to... um, uh, Insert their agenda, the religious agenda, into the teachings of history, social sciences, uh, character education, etc.
1: Well, when I so uh, that was-
5: that's what my book is about. And uh, I, in order to research the book, I spent years traveling the country, three years um, attending Good News clubs in different communities, talking to their leadership, going to national conventions, speaking with a variety of parents and educators, and uh, and uh, published the book uh, at the end of January.
1: Well, the Good News Clubs are, are actually a project of the Child Evangelical Foundation. Am I correct in that? It's, a,
5: it's called the Child Evangelism Fellowship. Okay. Um, and it's uh, been around since 1937. Uh, they've been around uh, the ideas to convert young children uh, to a fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity. But they've really um, gained a, a watershed uh, victory in, in 2001 uh, with a Supreme Court decision Good News Club versus Milford Central School, which allowed them to operate in public schools. And uh, since that time, their presence in public schools in the last 10 years has grown 728%. There are now over 3,200 Good News Clubs in public elementary schools around the country. And uh, I started on this project because I'm a mom and my daughter was in kindergarten. And uh, we were living in Santa Barbara, California. And the Good News Club came to our public school. And my first thought was that this was no big deal. You know, the group requires parental permission for kids to join. So I figured, you know, let the parents who want their kids to learn about the Bible sign them up. They called themselves uh, non-denominational, and I just figured it was no big deal. But then I started hearing stories from parents in, in our town whose kids went to schools where Good News Clubs had recently been established and I began to realize that Good News Clubs are less concerned with studying the Bible than with, with call it, turning kids into what I can only describe as faith-based bullies. I started hearing stories about kids, kindergartners, you know, friends' daughters. On the, I mean, daughter, uh, friends of my daughter were on the playground in their public schools when uh, friends, you know, their you know kids from school who were attending the Good News Clubs would come up to them and you know figure out that they didn't believe in Jesus and say, "Well, you're going to go to hell." And uh you know kids targeting their non Christian peers for faith based bullying, and I realized that little kids at these ages they just can 't distinguish between an activity that takes place in a school and one that is endorsed by the school and The good news club leaders know that, and that's why they're so intent on establishing these clubs in public schools. They also, when I started learning about the group, they also instruct children on how to recruit their their peers to the club. Um, I've heard so many stories about kids who are who are told explicitly by their teachers, you know, the Good News Club teachers, go out and tell your friends that if you don't, if you want to live, you need to believe in Jesus. If you don't want to go to hell, you need to believe in Jesus. And they're given points or prizes or sometimes even candy for recruiting their peers to the club.
1: Well, you mentioned um, uh, bullying, and I understand that that there are some Christian organizations, specifically focused on the family. That have opposed uh, school rules designed to stop bullying. Now, now, why That's would true. they take that position? Jesus taught kindness and compassion. Why would organizations that profess to follow Jesus support bullying?
5: Well, those organizations, such as uh, Focus on the Family or Gateways to Better Education, uh, the Alliance Defense Fund, these other entities, claim that teaching um, uh, that, that anti-bullying rules. They say discriminate against the Christian viewpoint. Um, what they really want to do is they want it uh, to, to to make it okay for kids to say, um, you know, being gay is bad because my God says so. And uh, and and so that's why they're so focused on these anti-bullying initiatives. So In fact, is, some of those.
1: Um, is, um, sorry, I go on. Is the um, the attempt by Christian organizations to get into public schools and the successful attempt, based on what I saw, my lived in Atlanta. Does that have anything to do with the uptick in bullying that's been going on in public schools so badly, such a large uptick that there's now a movie out about it?
5: Well, I, you know, I'm not an expert on bullying, and I'm not sure. I'm sure there are multiple reasons why um, there's an uptick in bullying, and I imagine the solutions have a lot to do with the, you know, you know, creating a compassion compassionate, you know, cultures in general in school environments. But certainly making it okay to bully kids because they're gay is not going to be part of any reasonable solution.
1: So, well, I mentioned I live in Atlanta and almost every week uh, there was a lawsuit, a political fight, screaming going on at school board meetings because some pastor was trying to use a classroom or a school event to proclaim Christianity and uh, recruit students. Um, And from what I'm hearing from you, my experience wasn't unique. You say there's 3,200 schools, and and you encountered it in Santa Barbara. I lived in Santa Barbara, and it's not exactly what you would call a uh, conservative community. Uh, So this is a national problem then.
5: It is a national problem, and it's look, if a school in a diverse community is to function well, its members need to show a certain amount of civility and respect to one another. We're all free to practice our faith, if any, in our homes, houses of worship, and any number of other places. I feel like, do we really need to turn our public schools into religious battlefields? But that's exactly what the religious right is doing, where the forceful insertion of all these different religious initiatives in the public schools and frankly as I write about in my book I think, it's, um, I think it's part of a two-pronged strategy one is to kind of take over public schools and the other one is to kind of weaken them and abolish them altogether I think you know, in their efforts to inject their form of faith into the schools leaders of the religious right um, suggest that they just want to see their views included and that they're fighting for they call it religious liberty but I, I think that that's best a half truth Many leaders of the far right have long advocated abolishing abolishing public education altogether, you know, and to be sure, plenty of religious conservatives are friendly to the public schools, and they send their kids to them, but they're not the ones driving the bus.
1: Well, <laughs> or uh, the school bus uh, so, so to speak yeah the school bus uh, right.
5: you know i mean i think if you look at a lot of the people who are supporting uh the move to inject you know uh conservative forms of evangelical christianity in the school they're the same one some of the same ones advocating for um uh defunding public schools through the voucher movement uh vouchers as you know um divert uh public school funding into private religious schools
1: well, getting back to, uh, to that particular point, the public schools are part of the government, and they're paid for by all taxpayers uh, who may or may not be, be Christians. I was always under the impression, and, and the fights that we went through in Atlanta, uh, many, many judges pointed this out, that uh, religion doesn't belong in the public schools, period. That the taxpayers it's interesting. Do, uh, mm-hmm. do, do not, uh, are by the by Uh, the Constitution forbids uh, the teaching of religion or the promotion of religion in any government agency, and specifically public schools. And what you're saying is that there's a national assault on public schools to get them to become essentially Christian organizations?
5: Yeah, and also you have to understand, look, we have a very large diversity of approaches to the Christian faith in this country. Most of the activists I met, for instance, we're just taking one organization, the Child Evangelism Fellowship. Most of the activists I met who work for that organization as Good News Club leaders and instructors believe that most Americans who call themselves Christian Really aren't including U.S. Episcopalians, United Methodists, Roman Catholics, which they describe as a whole separate religion. They say we're Christian and they're Catholic. You know, uh, this kind of is, was astonishing to me how exclusive their view of Christianity actually is. They call themselves Bible-believing Christians, and they think if you're not Bible-believing, which means you believe, you know, according to their, you know, what they say, the Old and, Test- and New Testaments are the inerrant Word of God and attend a Bible-believing church, then you're not really properly Christian. I've had, uh, I have so many chapters in my book in which I describe how good news, several chapters in my book in which uh, Good News Club uh, workers say things like, oh, I was able to get into a New Age church, you know, and preach the gospel. Well, the New Age church they're talking about is, you know, uh, you know an Episcopalian church. They really have a very, the ones I met had a very contemptuous uh, attitude toward uh, other forms of the Christian faith. Um, it's interesting, I went to their national convention and I attended a seminar called Reaching Out to the Hispanic Child, and it was run by um, a woman who, um, who said, um, oh, one thing to remember is when you're talking to them, she's talking about Hispanic kids, is don't discredit the Catholic Church, at least not at the beginning. You don't say Catholic Church is bad, Catholic religion is bad. You don't say that to the Catholic people. Because the kids are going to go back to their parents and tell them everything what, that was said. Say so they will go back and tell them everything. And what's going to happen? The parent is, is going to say, you don't go there anymore, because they're going to go against our beliefs. I mean, so if they really kind of want to...
1: is what you're saying. Yeah,
5: it's very deceptive. Yeah, we're, they we're, rely we're, on deception.
1: We're talking with uh, Catherine Stewart. The book is The Good News Club, The Christian Right's Stealth Assault on America's Children. And let me introduce you to my, my co-host, Chuck Morris, and also our resident Catholic theologian, Deacon Michael <coughs> Chuck? Chuck, are you there? Uh, Mike, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, we'll see. What the, uh, why don't, uh, maybe you have some commentary on this while I see if we can get Chuck back.
3: <clears throat> okay. Catherine, it's interesting. You noted just the last uh, few seconds ago in the conversation that some of these people, good news and so forth and so on, have a rather um, snobbish or just a, a critical approach to Roman Catholicism, like it. It's not even Christianity, and I think, uh, you know, over the years, that's perhaps been fairly common to have people who are in a particular. uh, What I read on page 24 of the Bible is exactly the only thing that matters, and that's so contrary to any kind of Roman Catholic idea of what Scripture and text really is all about. So I think you you, you go ahead. No, I'm sorry, you go ahead. Yeah, I just got to say that, you know, I think it's important, again, when people label themselves as having the ultimate in Christianity, then that's some kind of self-serving oxymoron.
5: Yes, I, I think it's also important in this instance to look at our history as a country. Um, you know, when the public schools were founded, the kind of Protestant uh, religion that was going to be taught in the public schools was, under, was a heavily contentious issue. Um, and uh, uh, there's a law in the book stating from 1837 when the public schools were founded that mm. says the public fund should not go to uh, purchasing textbooks that favor any particular sectarian doctrine. Now back then they were talking about a kind of pansectarianism within the Protestant faith. But when you look what happened when Catholics started to immigrate to our country in large numbers, it just, everything broke loose. I mean, people fought and died in the streets around this issue. In, in Boston, there was the Elliott School Rebellion where, you know, uh, the kids, right. uh, primarily Catholic kids, were being prevented from, uh, right. you know, exercising their faith at school. Public school textbooks at that time uh, had were full, filled with uh, racist characterizations of um, people of Catholic descent and, and very contemptuous characterizations of the Pope at the time. And there was the Cincinnati Bible Wars. In Philadelphia, people, dozens of people were killed when, uh, when uh, anger about you know uh, Protestant versus Catholic teachings in public schools uh, erupted into the streets. So I think we can learn a lot from our history. When any particular group attempt, attempts to take over the public schools and use it to promote their particular form of religion, it's it's very divisive to communities and uh, and all people suffer and and uh, and the schools suffer.
1: But uh, Chuck, are you are you are you with us? Uh, we're we're seem to be having a problem with, with Chuck. I can see him on the board. Chuck, I'm here. Okay, all right.
2: you remember hey, the Am I coming in, in okay?
1: Yeah, you're coming in okay.
2: Uh, yeah, Catherine, I just got your book today, so I really haven't had a chance to even open it. Uh, so I, I really don't know a lot about the Good News Club um I, I would say to you, Patrick, let's not go on a witch hunt too quickly against this Christian group. Let's have them on the sh- on the air so we can hear what they have to say and and also, I need to uh have a chance to read the book
1: um thank you
2: good and let's let's get them up um uh, mm-hmm. as far as the texas te- textbook situation. I don't know a lot about that, but I don't believe in the theory of evolution on scientific grounds, not religious grounds, and I think it should be taught as a uh, philosophy, alongside the religious theories, which also should be taught as philosophies, and then uh, people can have a little bit more of a broad-minded view of these things, Um, so I I don't know if it's explicitly a religious phenomena. Now, uh, as far as um, bullying in school, I highly doubt if Christians are involved in in the the uptick, if there has been an uptick in bullying. I think it has a lot more to do with a a destruction of civility in this country and the ability of young people to know, you know, how to behave uh, respectfully toward each other, even if they don't agree. And also the idea of the the school as acting in loco parentis seems to have disintegrated somewhat. And, uh, you know, it it has more to do with those sorts of issues. I, I doubt if Christians are bullying um, non-Christians to any, any degree. Maybe they are, but I'd need to see that. Um, Catherine, you come up with some very sweeping conspiracy theories here.
5: Hmm. That's some the other people thing will up. say that I'm alarmist, uh, but I have learned firsthand that I'm not. <laughs> I've seen well, so let me, many... Uh, let, interesting let me,
2: Go ahead. Let me ask you if you could substantiate a few things. You say that um, the Good News Club or the organization Child Evangelical Fellowship is part of a conspiracy to destroy public education. Um, do I you say think that, that they're their trying aims to create with respect
5: to public education are destructive, and I would like to quote from you okay, that's um, okay. something that Matt Staver said at the National Convention of the Child Evangelism Fellowship. He was one of their four keynote speakers, and he was also heads up their legal uh, effort. He is the founder and president of Liberty Council, which is a very powerful legal advocacy group for the religious right and he provides them with a lot of their legal cover. His quotes, I'll give you a couple of them. He said when they, um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, so give me a minute to just look it up in my book. He says, um, uh, when they took the, uh, Jesus is the foundation of education, what was for the good was a, became a consequence of evil. So he's talking, in his view, public education without Jesus, found, Jesus is the foundation is, is a consequence of evil. Um, well, well, you're, saying something
2: different. you're saying something a little different now. Now you're saying not that they're trying to destroy public education, but that their influence on it is, according to you, destructive. I would say the influence of sex education is destructive in public education, too. And bo- both of us may be right, but the fact is that I think, in, especially now that we've admitted that it's perfectly constitutional for them to have after-school meetings, which is not something that was admitted even a week ago, Patrick. Uh, I think that it is appropriate to have freedom of expression and and a free exchange of ideas. And, look, I'm not Christian myself, and I would not want to have my daughter evangelized in school, but the the answer to that is to teach our children our own religion and strengthen them in their own faith as a way to respectfully and carefully counter um, a proselytizer and that yes, the group, the Good News Club, sounds to me like they need to tone things down a little bit. You know, well, they, we're if we're talking. They, Is we're talking about, about the Good it, News Club? That's not a, that's not appropriate. So I agree with you with on that. With Good
5: News Clubs, we're talking about elementary schools. I mean, at the high school level, after school groups in general, I think should have the maximum leeway. But when you know, when we're talking about little kids, you know, for them, no institution has as much authority as the public schools. If it happens in school, they think it must be true. So I think there's a different right. approach when it comes to the after-school clubs. You know, you can look at a group of Christian athletes or Jewish athletes who want to get together after school and practice their faith after school. I don't have a problem with that, or the Glisten groups or any of the other groups. But when you're talking about inserting an organization that attempts to convert small children who are too young to read to an even, you know, well, fundamentalist form of Christianity... It's sort of Chaplain, a different story, and also I think I, you know we affair, shouldn't get overly legalistic here. You talked about to get, creating compassionate they to get communities. Some things are legally or constitutionally parents? Parents? permissible. But oh, well, well, it, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, but, didn't didn't um, they so say I, that they had to get? Excuse me, didn't they say or you said
5: that these young course, children permit, would have to get permission? Of course, parental permission, but. Yes, but those no. children are not used – those children are being used to convert their peers. So it's introducing a form of what I can only describe of as faith-based bullying into kindergartens no, and first, first grades. Now, and the other thing is you talk about creating uh, compassionate communities to, to disrupt bullying, and I agree with you. I think that some things that are legally or constitutionally permissible, uh, just because they are legally or constitutionally permissible, it doesn't mean that they're the right thing to do. You know, I, I think right. public schools should not be places for religious battles, you know, for religious battlefields. We have enough to worry about, you know, when it comes to educating our children. I think public schools should be a place where communities set aside their differences, their ethnic differences, religious differences, and come together in support of our children and their future.
1: We have to take a the quick conversation break, is involved uh, in and we'll as continue yeah. as we come back. Uh, this is America. your listening to Fairness mm-hmm. Radio mm-hmm. with Chuck and mm-hmm. Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, on the uh, Cyber Station USA Network, and our radio affiliates. We're going to uh, skip the usual break here because we've got a hot conversation going uh, for, for our radio stations. Uh, if you go ahead and take a break, that's it. We'll You can just come back in in about 30 seconds. So, uh, Chuck, you were about to ask a question, and then we I'd like to see if uh, Mike can get a word in edgewise. Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. So, well, I just would point out that if a young child who's in the Good News Club uh, is in any way or shape or form bullying in school, then that's a discipline problem. I mean, then that should be handled by the school. Uh, it doesn't mean that the young child shouldn't be able to attend the, uh, the Good News Club. I mean, I, as a, a first grader, was attending Hebrew school. I know that my Catholic friends were attending catechism. You know, to my way of thinking, it's more to do with, Civil discourse and less to do with whether or not they are are accepting a religion, which I think is good. I'll skip, skip uh, Mike.
5: Catherine and then Mike. Pardon. Oh uh oh you think that people should it's about civil discourse um yeah well the pro, you know Felix Frankfurter he's a, a justice a supreme court justice said something like I'm paraphrasing a bit here any activity that uh, that sharpens the consciousness of religious differences among children is precisely the sort of unintended the consequences of which against which the the constitution was 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 trying to guard I'm 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 paraphrasing a bit a bit here but uh... his point was i think well taken um, one of the greatest lessons about in, that public schools teach is how kids, they teach kids how to get along with kids from other backgrounds. And if you have these groups that are coming in and, you know, look, I, my, I've got two kids, five and ten. They play with their friends of all different backgrounds, and they get along harmoniously, uh, and, and it's great. But if you have an organization uh, run by adults that's coming in and telling some of those kids, hey, look around the playground and figure which should these kids, you know, you know, don't have the right eye color, or don't belong to the right kind of faith, and tell them that they need to change. Then those are that that organization is doing exactly what uh, Justice Frankfurter was was trying to to warn us about sharpening the consciousness of religious differences among school children. And that, I believe, erodes that very important purpose of public education, which is getting kids to set aside their differences and and, and come together and and, and learn.
1: Uh, Mike, any comments on this? Any thoughts? Well, it's
5: interesting
3: to bring up the idea of kids being influenced, if you will, by a particular situation where this Christianity, and I call it an oxymoron, which I mentioned earlier, when it involves an absolutism kind of thing that says this is the only approach to understanding a faith in Christ. But in a particular area where, uh, again, Chuck and I have some experience in the Northeast section, especially in the Boston area, the suburbs, you know, organizations like the ADL and other kinds of Facing History and Ourselves organization uh, Mm. are very sensitive to the kind of interreligious, interface situations, and actually promote and suggest ideas where peers from the first grade through high school would come and offer uh, programs on stereotyping and tolerance and respect and listening to each other and promoting goodwill. Uh, and so... It's interesting that, you know, Catherine talks about places in Texas and California where this, what I call, oxymoron of Christianity exists. But, uh, Chuck, you can comment, too. I haven't seen that kind of thing happen, uh, in particular, in the uh, metropolitan Boston or suburban area.
2: Well, neither, neither have I. I know that when I was well, in actually, uh, high school, t- we had a, uh, an Eastern Nazarene group in Quincy. You you might know about that, Mike. Eastern yep. Nazarene College and uh, they had a, a group that was very strongly Christian, pro- proselytizing, wearing, a, I remember this one kid used to wear this gigantic wooden cross around his neck, and and I was friendly with them. I went back and hung out with them sometimes at their church, and they were very much like what you're describing, Catherine, but they were not bullies. They weren't. They got along fine with with the non-Christian kids in the class. You know, there wasn't this sort of, you know, they did believe that they were giving the good news, and they did believe in their faith, and, yeah, they would like to see people convert, but I, I didn't feel that they were unable to engage in, in civic discourse with people. And if they were, then the, t- the school would have disciplined them and should have. I mean, I would think that if these young kids, if you have first graders, and if you're saying there's a situation like this, and it probably can be some named, I don't think it might, might be as extensive as you claim, but if that's what's happening, then the principal at the school needs to bring the head of this organization into his office and say, look, you can, it's fine for you to teach your faith, but we have a problem here with these kids doing this that, and the other thing, and it has to stop.
1: Well, to
5: a like over, out, uh, uh, you know, most principals are so busy with things like classroom instruction and dealing with shortfalls in budgets that they're really not equipped to start to you know, monitor the funny. needless
1: uh, we we, have, to take, well, we have to take a quick break uh, and for our stations to identify themselves, so we'll be right back. This will be a one-minute long break. Don't go away. radio with chuck and patrick on the blog talk radio network on cyber station usa and on our radio affiliates we're talking with katherine stewart and the book is the good news club the right right-wing christian stealth assault on american children and Catherine, we have a lot of email for you here and uh... so why don't i just go right to uh... the email we have an email here from linda billings and linda billings is in san francisco and she said This happened to my child. My child was gay, and he was ganged up on by a bunch of Christians. I don't know if they were from the good news clubs or not, but this seems to be a daily occurrence. Every day the Christian kids call him names and point him out, and sometimes they even push him into his locker. I've gone to the principal about it several times, and the principal says she can't do anything about it. So I finally took him out of school, but there is bullying going on in schools, and my son was, was was part of it. I think she means he was a victim of it. Uh Catherine, is that an um a an atypical response or an atypical story? Looks like we uh we lost Catherine. uh oh boy. Uh boy. We are having our problems here. Let me just check real quick. Uh, uh Catherine, okay. did you hear the letter?
5: There we are. Uh I did hear the letter, thanks. Is that, is that um, atypical? Sh- yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm looking at two books in front of me. One is written by Matthew Staver and the other is written by Al- Alan Sears. These two men uh, run two of the lar- largest legal advocacy, group, advocacy groups of the religious right, the Alliance Defense Fund and the Liberty Council. Matthew Staver's book is titled Same-Sex Marriage, Putting Every Household at Risk. And Alan Sears' book is titled The Homosexual Agenda, Exposing the Principal Threat to religious freedom today, I think if you have the two men who are the heads of the two largest largest religious advocacy groups, Christian, you know, so-called Christian religious advocacy groups, uh, of the religious right, writing books of, in which they absolutely place, you know, all the problems of civilization squarely on what they call the homosexual agenda, you're going to start seeing a lot more targeting of uh, the GLBT community. It's, it's going to happen in all aspects I of society. I want to respond to
2: that. I want to respond to that. I highly doubt if bullying against gay people is done primarily by Christians. I just don't think it is. I think that you're taking a very serious issue, and that is bullying, whether it be against gay people or, or anyone else, and you're trying to use it to make a case against these particular Christians, particular Christian group. I don't think that I didn't these Christians did. I understand that. But I, I I'm looking at these
5: books right in my I head.
2: understand that, and they have a right to that opinion. But I'm saying that that does not therefore <laughs> translate into them bullying gays. I just don't think that's the main people bullying gays are not young Christians. That's my point. And for you to even apply, imply that, no, they don't. You know, they do. They're against the homosexual agenda. What they call the homosexual agenda. That's their right. You and I may not agree with that. What I'm saying is that that does not therefore mean that Christians are out there bullying gay people. I doubt that. They're
5: just targeting them. For, they're just they're just scapegoating them? Is that what you're saying? They're scapegoating them They're not them? Doing not anything
2: to them? them. No, I, yeah, they're not. I well, think that the main people that target gay people actually are more secular bullies that are not Christian. Now, you don't have any evidence to suggest that that the people that are Christian are targeting, targeting gays, and I, I think that's a very bad implication. I mean, that's using I, a, a I very serious I see a lot difference. of the leaders
5: of the religious right targeting gays as adults uh, mm-hmm. in their speeches at the National Convention, the Child Evangelism Fellowship. I heard no, uh, Matthew yeah, Stever get up not there
2: respond. and I understand decry the that, that, so-called and I homosexual agenda. Fine, you don't agree with that position. Mm-hmm. I have some issues with that position as well. My point is that that does not therefore mean that they're in any way – uh, it, you know, it, it compromising the integrity or, or, or harassing gay people. I don't believe they are. Well, we, I just think that no the people data. who are involved so with that are not Christians. Let's respond go
1: on to the next email, because neither of us have any data on this. Uh, this. The next email is from Cindy Weinstein in St. Paul. I had to take my daughter out of grammar school because she was teased by kids who constantly said she was going to hell because she wasn't Christian. She now goes to a Jewish school, which is what we should have done to start with. But I tried the public schools, and they just are a hellhole.
5: That's, that makes me very sad to hear that letter. I mean, this is, and I have to say, you know, we'd like to believe that the harm to public schools and to public education is an unintended byproduct of this insertion of religion into public schools. But unfortunately, I think it's precisely uh, one of the one of the intended consequences. I think. Uh, you know, the, inserting one form of religion so forcefully into public schools has get, uh, the consequence of making kids of other faiths feel completely unwelcome, and it, and it forces those families to withdraw, if not actually drawing their kids out, as this woman has and withdrawn in an emotional sense. I've met so many parents who've stopped donating money to the PTA. They stop, um, you know, donating uh, hours of unpaid labor to the, uh, you know, to the school fairs and things like that, because they all of a sudden start to feel like a school is an unwelcome place for their families and their children.
2: Well, look, that's a very sad story, and that should be dealt with. Again, I think it's an issue of civility and and the fact that our young people are not taught to treat other people with basic respect and dignity, no matter whether, you know, regardless of whether they're Christian or non-Christian or otherwise. And, uh, you know, I don't doubt that the email is story, but I think we could have stories and anecdotes from a lot of people who have been bullied over a lot of different reasons.
1: We have a, 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 a note here, an email here from Cindy Wallace in Dallas, and Cindy says we have a we have a right to speak. There are schools too. We pay the taxes for those schools just as much as the atheists do. You are trying to kick the Bible out of public schools.
5: I, uh, I think we have an irreducible diversity of religions in America. America, we have a no, very wide variety of faiths, wide varieties of types of the Christian faith. Why different different interpretations of the Bible, and when one particular group tries to commandeer the public resource, the public education, public schools, for the benefit of their particular sectarian agenda, it's going to create problems.
2: I don't disagree with that, but I think that the answer is for people to become strengthened in their own faith or lack of faith, as it were, and to be to be active in it so that they can counter that influence. And if they go over the line and they're they're bullying and mean, and I don't doubt that doesn't happen, then that's a problem for the school administration to deal with.
1: Of course, uh, as I found in Atlanta, sometimes the school administration is part of it. Uh, Mike, you've been awfully quiet. You have any thoughts on any of the emails that we've gotten? <laughs>
3: Well, it's, it's very hard, I think, as Chuck was saying, too, to listen to uh, a difficult story, an anecdote, and not come away feeling very sad because it shouldn't happen, and civility is the underlying issue perhaps there. I guess, too, I'm coming from my own experience, and some years ago uh, I was elected to the local school committee here in the town of Walpole, uh, and I just kind of recognized it's the thing that, that caught my eye, that the superintendent of schools, the assistant superintendent, were both Catholic, and the seven members of the school committee were also Roman Catholic. And I thought to myself, wow, what is this all about? And yet, being the kind of town Walpole was, when things would perhaps come to fore and something would happen in the classroom, Uh, the population, the citizens regardless, would come into an open meeting of the school committee and say, this is wrong, this is not right, this is intolerable. And the people would raise an issue, and the administration, the school committee, would have to respond. And I think that's the basis in America, that when things are going wrong, it's up to everyone, parents, other citizens, and so forth, to recognize a wrong and try to address it.
1: Catherine, can they do
3: that? Uh,
5: you, when a good news club wants to enter a public school, uh, you can't exclude them. If you've l- opened what's technically called a limited public forum, which is to say if you let in any outside activities, a soccer club, a theater club, whatever, you have to um, uh, let in uh, religious uh, clubs because the, um, the theory is that um, uh, if you exclude them, then you're discriminating against their uh, particular viewpoint. Um, well,
2: So uh, that
5: makes it very challenging. In effect, it gives a trump card to religious groups because it's only in the case of religious groups that to exclude them amounts to a violation of their free speech. So now uh, schools can exclude soccer clubs or theater groups or political groups if they wish, but the only category they can't exclude is the religious groups. And the Good News Club has made quick use of this trump card, and other religious groups have too.
1: The uh, the increase in their
5: numbers in the past 10 years uh, tells a story.
1: Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, do, they, do they do it with any kind of deception?
5: Uh, well, I think they rely on deceit in a number of ways, you know, presenting themselves as being broadly Christian while having a very exclusively, uh, exclusive view of uh, the Christian religion. But the biggest kind of deception, I think, is that the whole purpose of the clubs is to deceive little kids into believing that a particular religious approach and belief is endorsed by the school. They're, the centerpiece of the program is something called the wordless book. It's used to convert children who are too young to read. It has no words, just colors and shapes. And it's used to teach the evangelical gospel to, um, to kids who are too young to read. Those kids think that if it happens in the school, it must be true. And I have to point out that in many instances you have school teachers are actually, you know, working in their capacity as school teachers during the school day, and after school they lead a good news club. So at, you know, two o'clock they're teaching two plus two equals four, and after the bell rings at two twenty, they're teaching if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. How is a little children not able able to to say, oh well, that's not what the school wants me to believe?
1: Well, we're we're out of time, unfortunately. This is a great conversation, uh, Catherine. Uh, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, thank you, you so much for in. having
5: me, and thank you to my uh, fellow uh, participants. Uh,
1: the, the book is Good News Club, The Christian Right's Stealth Assault on America's Children. It's available at Amazon.com and many other fine online and on-the-ground uh, uh, bookstores. Uh, you can follow Catherine at her website, www.thegoodnewsclub.com. Well, that's it for today. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and our affiliates. Visit our website at fairnessradio.com, and don't forget to sign up for our Twitter feed and keep, tra- keep track of our Facebook page. And so, mm-hmm. good night, everybody.
2: Good night, and thanks for joining us, Mike. Night. All right, Good night. All right.
1: Thank you.
0: Hello? Line of crosses in a path. Even hearing the east-west. The wire highway we'll up in right of the telegraph. On a sea of very snow, like a picture of long ago. And I was riding on the way I was thinking on the past. Out across the seas, watching people turn the photographs and every sailor knows the truth of the anchor in the chain. So the stairs, and the sun lies down before you out on the big east west in the silo up ahead the golden promise of the sun right it up into your daily prayer,
5: bring, bring it home to, home to your
0: loved ones once and every now and then when you get back from the morn you turn around, around and, and you're gone, gone again, again. again to that wide open Every sailor knows the truth of the anchor. Ancient...